This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Have you ever considered the possibility, even the remote possibility, as many might assume, that we just might not be from here? That alien races, advanced extraterrestrial beings, have somehow seeded the planet with human DNA. Maybe we might not be from that garden, you know the one, with a talking snake where two human beings nibbled on the wrong apple at the wrong time. Just maybe. Tonight's guests present us with these possibilities that we just might not be from here. So set aside your assumptions, your presuppositions about where we're from and what you believe. Challenge your reality. Here on Zuma Radio, AM 740. Because this is The Conspiracy Show. And that's right. It is The Conspiracy Show. Good evening, my name is Victor Vigiani. I'm here sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening on The Conspiracy Show. Richard is in Greece, yes, uh, on a well-earned vacation. He's probably sitting on a beach somewhere or sipping some sort of exotic drink or trying to solve the economic crisis in Greece. But the fact of the matter is I'm sitting here in the big chair this evening and I thank him for that. And uh, we'll let him sort of uh, just relax while we take up the gauntlet this evening and investigate the many things that are out there to investigate. This evening, we've got a very, very dynamic show for you this evening. And uh, it's going to be very disturbing because if it's anything like the last week that I've put in trying to put together things for the program, uh, sitting here right now looking back and... um, Sort of almost you know, sitting between absolute certainty and total um, confusion about what the evening will be like. And I'm sure this evening you'll get a taste of that. This evening's guests centered around ancient aliens, as our initial clip set out. And the background that I have in education sort of sets the key tone for me to make the needed changes in, in the way we think we have to look at what I call converging lines of evidence and different possibilities and sources of information. 
And we're going to do that this evening in as many different ways as we can. And this, uh, this evening's guests, first of all, later on this evening, probably a little, a little while, about 40 minutes, we'll be talking to uh, Jason Martell, who is a, a researcher in ancient alien studies, as he's uh, looked at many different aspects of where we're from and the technologies that ancient civilizations here on the planet experienced far beyond what we have right now. As a matter of fact, there'll be some technologies that Egyptians and the Chinese and so on and so forth had way back two or three, four thousand years ago that we have today. And we have to wonder why and how they got these civilizations into a place where these technologies were part and parcel of their daily lives. But before that, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jack Pruitt, the author of The Grandest Deception, and uh, he wrote this book, and uh, I reviewed it for him on Exopolitics, the Exopolitics Institute, uh, several months ago. And it's a very disturbing book, and Dr. Pruitt wrote it and uh, with a, a certain amount of angst, I think. And this evening we're going to hear about his perceptions of where we've come from and what the Bible says about where we've come from. And Dr. Pruitt has some very, very distinct uh, I guess, ideas about what the Bible is and what it tells us and where it's really come from. But uh, Dr. Jack Pruitt is a physician. He lives in South Texas. He runs a small medical clinic in rural uh, Houston. He's spent many years studying the Bible, the works of Zechariah Sitchin and the Dead Sea Scrolls and various scriptures and religious and spiritual nature. The conclusions that he reached are described in the grandest deception are his own. They're not to be represented by any, any other opinions, but he does have a very specific outlook. Dr. Pruitt believes that ancient astronauts came to Earth in our distant past, that they created mankind, and that they, their descendants run the world today. That's a pretty big pill to swallow. Like he says, he has bet his eternal soul that the conclusions that he has reached are correct. It's quite a statement. So let's welcome Dr. Jack Pruitt. Doctor, good evening. Hello. How are you? Hello, Victor. Nice to be with you. We finally meet, my good friend. We've uh, met, communicated over many different ways, and now we speak to one another in, uh, in true reality. So welcome to the program, and uh, let's hope that we can uh, get to the bottom of a few things that uh, you've put together over the last several years. Tell us a bit about the book and how it came together and why you did it. Well, uh... I guess the beginnings, uh, a little over two and a half years ago, were simply that um, I became quite curious about um, why um, we were doing certain things, why the government was doing something, certain things, uh, why um, our world was so secretive and uh, uh, we weren't being informed about certain things. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, the Bible does say is that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so I was curious why, uh, when things like the Roswell incident occurred, for instance, why the government didn't uh, just bend over backwards to get us all the information possible so that it, whether those things were true, not true, or whatever the situation was, why, why weren't we given information so that at least uh, the citizenry would uh, pretty much be in agreement about those sorts of things, and uh, uh, that was kind of the beginning, and then uh, I just stumbled across uh, Zachariah Sitchin's works uh, seven, eight years ago, and uh, heard him on an interview with George Norrie, and uh, I'd been in 
so involved with the medicine and and the Bible for so many years that I was totally unaware of uh, the things that Sitchin was writing about, but uh, was intrigued by his works and spent uh, a good number of years, the last seven years or so, really studying his works in depth and uh, gathering as much evidence and information as possible and uh, began to put that together with the Bible and uh, reached the conclusions that I did uh, state in the book. Yeah, I, you know what? I, let's just go back a second. You, you mentioned uh, your, your familiarity with the Bible. Let's just spend a moment with that. Uh, you know, myself, as you know, being brought up a, a Catholic, I mean, I have not read the, the Bible to the certain extent that most biblical scholars have, and, but I would defer to your expertise. But you seem to be very, very in tune with and acquainted with and familiar with the, the Bible as, a, as an entity. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's something that we need to look at uh, eventually, and, and the, the, the way that you interpret the Bible and your expertise, and then moving away from it. So I think just after the break here, I think what we're going to do is have a look at your familiarity with the Bible. So stay with us, uh, Dr. Jack, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at that, because I really would like to investigate your familiarity with the Bible just after our break here, okay? So stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Good evening once again. We're with Dr. Jack Pruitt, author of The Grandest Deception. Um, Doctor, we spoke just before the break about your familiarity with the Bible, and uh, I need to have that as a foundation for the kind of transition that you made about what you believe about the Bible. So just kind of let us know what your initial feelings were about what you believe the Bible was when you um, sort of interacted with it, and then how that transitioned into what you believe right now. Well, as a child, I was simply um, taught by parents, grandparents, and Actually, all the adults in the little town where I was raised, that the Bible was uh, the Word of God, divinely inspired by God, and uh, that um, it was all about God and His interaction with with mankind. And uh, uh, I was taught that it was an instruction book about how I should live my life. And so actually, in my 20s, when I began to... Uh, experience some of the difficulties of life and then things weren't going as well as I uh, thought they should be. I decided it's time I read the instruction book and uh, I have really had kind of a strange uh, obsession about the Bible, trying to understand it since my early 20s. And uh, the more times I read it, uh, it seemed like the more questions I had rather than the more answers I found. And uh, so then over the years, I actually uh, probably attended every denomination of every church uh, there was within a hundred-mile radius of wherever I happened to be, and searching for answers, asking theologians, preachers, priests, rabbis, whoever would talk to me uh, to explain some of the things that were confusing, and um, eventually uh, settled on a church and um, actually became the director of the Sunday school there, and uh, uh, taught Bible study lessons for many years, and uh, finally just um, 
decided that uh, um, I wasn't getting anywhere. I, I, I didn't have any more answers than I did when I began, really, and, and it was all very frustrating to me. Uh, I had always thought that if I just spent enough time studying and working, then uh, I could read the English, and so I should be under, able to understand that book, but I couldn't. And uh, not until I read Sitchin and began to study him did I feel like I really um, had a good understanding of what the Bible really says. And, of course, it was an extremely bitter pill to swallow. Um, I'd spent 68 years on this planet uh, believing in that book and uh, trying to understand it and to realize that my whole life until that point had been basically living a lie was uh, very difficult for me to uh, come to terms with but uh, what what okay. do you mean li- what do you mean living a lie well living uh, believing things that that were not simply are not true uh, uh, believing that the bible is the word of god believing that uh, there is a need in our lives for a messiah uh, um, those sort of things i'm absolutely convinced today are not true, and what I call the grandest deception is the fact that uh, I'm absolutely convinced, and I think the evidence is overwhelming today if one chooses to look, uh, that the Bible is actually a story about alien beings who did come to Earth uh, about 450,000 years ago and did create mankind in their image and likeness, and uh, created us to be a slave race to do the work that they want done here on Earth, and I'm very, very comfortable with those conclusions today. Well, yeah, that's that's uh, it's quite a quite a turnaround. It's a big 180 degrees. But before we get into that actual off-world civilization interaction, and I spent a lot of time, you know, reading your book. Actually, I've read the book several times now, three times at my last count, because it is very disturbing for, for me also. Um, but you also spent a good amount of time literally dismantling the capitalist, the, uh, the capitalist system that we work under, uh, articulating how it has been used to the advantage of the keeper, so to speak, and divide us on issues of global importance. And and you, you seem to feel that uh, you know that the Federal Reserve and uh, all of those sort of uh, you know capitalist man, uh, you know machinations have really been sent or sort of somehow control us to a point that uh, really lead us in a different direction of our beliefs and and how we interact on a daily basis. So how does that fit in with the biblical um, aspects of, of what you believe? Well, I, I think that the Anunnaki basically have. Uh, two primary goals in regards to planet Earth. Uh, I think that one, their goal is to acquire all of the wealth on the planet, and um, they're doing a very good job of that. Uh, The last uh, reports I've seen, I believe that uh, they now control over 75% of the wealth on this planet. And then their second uh, goal is to uh, dumb down and... uh, turn mankind into what I call a biological robot, um, uh, and basically I, I think that in order to do that, they're, they're making great attempts to remove our soul, our spirit. Uh, I don't know if that's possible to do or not, but I think that's what they're trying to do, so that we would basically have limited mental capacity and, and would not be uh, rebellious or uh, bothersome to them, but would, would just meekly and mildly uh, 
do the work that they want done. So just give us a bit of a refresher course on, on who the Anunnaki are. What, what, just tell us what your perception of who this, or what this race is all about. Well, according to Sitchin and the tablets, uh, the old Sumerian tablets, the tablets that were found in Mesopotamia, they were simply an alien race of beings who uh, came here from a planet called Nibiru uh, about 450,000 years ago. And uh, I, I think that uh, uh, Sitchin, um, the thing I respected about Sitchin so much is I think he had a good scientific mind. I think he documented the evidence very well. He is difficult to follow, and it's difficult reading, but uh, uh, once you uh, decipher all that and come to terms with it, I think that he did indeed prove that um, the Anunnaki, the the race of beings that we call Anunnaki today, uh, did come from um, um, another place. planet uh, and inhabited the earth and that they had descendants. Uh, The Bible talks about the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men, uh, and basically their descendants today are the, who we call the Illuminati or the establishment of the kings and queens of Europe, uh, uh, the hierarchy and the secret societies, uh, popes, archbishops of Canterbury, that sort of thing, who run our world today. So I guess what you're saying is that basically the history of mankind is um, on the precipice of being rewritten if uh, what you say is correct. That's very disturbing, isn't it? Yes, it is extremely disturbing. Like I said, a very bitter pill to swallow. But I do also think today that we are seeing an awakening. We are seeing... things change in our um, in our world in our solar system uh, uh, people are becoming more enlightened and much more open-minded today to uh, uh, at least be willing to look at uh, new ideas and I hope look at uh, the actual evidence that uh, we have available to us uh, uh, 50 years ago we simply didn't have the evidence didn't have the information but it, it is pretty readily available although um, it takes time and effort and uh, difficult to put it all together. But uh, okay, well, just, I believe just, the yeah. evidence is available today. Okay, well, just stay with us, Dr. Jack, and we'll uh, get to some of that evidence right after the break here on uh, AM 740, The Conspiracy Show. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. We're talking with Dr. Jack Pruitt, uh, author of The Grandest Deception, and just before the break we were talking about some of the evidence that is uh, on the precipice of, I guess, being uh, discovered through his book and through the work of Zachariah Stitchin and others like that that the, I guess, the human race was seeded here by uh, a race of beings from uh, an off-world planet or an off-world civilization. So um, let's just pursue that for a moment. It, it, doctor, uh, in what ways, uh, like, it just, it's very difficult for the, the common person to understand that 
that everything that they believed up until this point in terms of how uh, humanity came to be on the planet is uh, sort of being turned on its head by the fact that an alien race somehow seeded uh, us here on the planet. Uh, let, let's just pursue that for a second and try to explain to our listeners how you feel that this uh, actually occurred. Yes, it is extremely difficult, but uh, ancient tablets go into great detail, and by training, I am an obstetrician gynecologist. I've uh, delivered over 5,000 babies, and so I know a little about embryology and artificial insemination and cloning and in vitro fertilization and that sort of thing. And the tablets scientifically are very, very sound uh, and even more advanced than, than we are in those fields of genetic engineering today. But uh, um, they go through a process of how the Anunnaki uh, uh, took their own DNA from uh, the blood of a young Anunnaki male, uh, mixed it with uh, the DNA from a Neanderthal female, and and uh, produced uh, embryo, uh, implanted it into an Anunnaki female who carried it to term, and and that was the first atom. Uh, and these, like I say, scientifically, those tablets are, are an amazing description of, of genetic engineering, creating us in their image and likeness and how they did that. But talking about the evidence that, that is now available, there's a... Uh, bright, bright young mind in South Africa, Michael Tellinger, who has now found the Abzu, uh, which is the place where the Anunnaki laboratories were and where all these genetic engineering experiments took place. And it didn't happen immediately. In my opinion, it took them somewhere between five and 15,000 years uh, to create that first atom. Uh, but he's actually found the laboratories where that took place now. And as a matter of fact, I think there's going to be much, much new evidence uh, coming forth in the very near future to support uh, Sitchin's works and these conclusions. As a matter of fact, I'm moving to South Africa uh, immediately after the first of the year and uh, I'm going to join forces with Michael. He and I are going to try to put our minds together and develop some of this evidence. And and hopefully be able to make it available to mankind. So you're saying that there is actual evidence to to prove the 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 I guess the foundations of what you're talking about. Absolutely, and I think more, much more, is going to be forthcoming in our very near future. So in, in terms of all of that, it does, let's look at the establishment that's currently in power. And you have a lot to say about, you know, uh, the, the Federal Reserve and uh, the Masons and even senators uh, belonging to uh, masonry and, 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 and all of that. You seem to indicate that the, the establishment that's in place is here to do the work of, of, of uh, not just their own work, but to do the work of, of, of other people, of other, of other races. It, it, what's that all about? I, I, I was fortunate in, um, actually in 1974, when I finished my um, residency training program, I immediately joined Dr. Ron Paul, and he and I were medical partners for uh, about 20 years. And Dr. Paul, of course, is our Texas congressman who is now running for president for the third time. And so through my association with him, uh, I was able to learn some of the inner workings of government and, and some of the things that uh, take place behind closed doors and 
and that sort of thing. And uh, um, it's apparent to me uh, today that uh, our elected officials do not uh, run our government, but uh, they're simply manipulated and controlled in various and sundry ways and and told what to do. And, 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 and uh, um, although they may not be aware of that on, in all instances, uh, um, I nearly fell out of my chair a few months ago when Glenn Beck actually asked Ron Paul if he thought Congress was even relevant anymore. And Dr. Paul said no. And uh, I guess that's the one thing he and I have disagreed on now for a good number of years about whether we could ever change things through the political process or not. And, and of course, Ron always believed that we could. And about 15 years ago, even before I'd ever heard of Sitchin, I decided that I did not think we could change things through the political process because our elected officials don't run it. Well, you know, uh, looking at that foundation of, of the argument that you're that you're putting forward, and uh, it's number one second that I doubt it. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I you know I, I do agree with you in many ways. But I guess what I, I'm having trouble with is wrapping my head around the fact that who exactly on the planet currently. Um, is in control of these kinds of things. If you say that Congress is irrelevant, if you say the Federal Reserve needs to be wiped out, if you say that uh, you know the, the elected officials have no idea what's going on, who are in fact the people that are that are running the show? I believe that the people who are running the show are the, uh, I guess what we could call the Illuminati or the members of the secret societies, not the average common member. They take in average members, but when you get to the very top, the very hierarchy, the trilateral commission, the, the Bilderbergs, the, all the, the skull and bones, et cetera, those, those organizations, I believe, are the direct descendants of the Anunnaki, and I'm not even sure they know what's going on, to tell you the truth. I believe that, that who is really running it are the Anunnaki from their underground uh, worlds that they still occupy, and I believe there's still uh, some of them here on Earth uh, living in the subterranean civilizations that they have built and uh, uh, are calling the shots from there and controlling things from there through the Illuminati and then through the secret societies and then through the elected officials and so forth, but I believe the, the top top, very top people calling the shots are the Anunnaki themselves. So who, who would they be? I mean, it, it, are, they, they, are they doing this from their homeworld planet, or are they here, actually here doing it now, presently? I just, I need to, you know... I believe that Enki is still here. He was the original one who sent to Earth uh, 450,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. One of the half-brothers, and uh, uh, he was actually the serpent in the Garden of Eden who tempted Eve, and his punishment was that he would eat dust the rest of his life and crawl on the ground. What that really all means is that I believe that Enki's punishment was that he could never return to Nibiru with the rest of the original pioneers to Earth, and that he had to remain on Earth. And um, he must be quite old now, but I also believe that the average lifespan for the Nananaki is probably around 500,000 years old. And so I think he and, and some of his 
entourage or his descendants are, are still here. And then uh, I think some of his uh, Anunnaki slash human descendants are the uh, what the Bible calls the mighty men of renown. These are the people, uh, and, and these bloodlines are very, very carefully uh, manipulated and controlled. Um, uh, uh, and they're the people who are uh, basically running the world uh, with direction from the Anunnaki today. Why did the Anunnaki come here to begin with? They came in search of gold. Uh, according to Sitchin and ancient tablets, they uh, needed gold. They were going to crush it into powder and spray it into their atmosphere because their atmosphere was deteriorating. And I think that's probably what their initial intent was. And indeed, they did mine the gold um, that was began by taking gold out of the Persian Gulf. The ancient tablets describe how they splashed down in the Persian Gulf, just like uh, we did uh, um, in the oceans, um, and began to take monatomic gold out of the waters of the Persian Gulf. And then over a period of time, they found massive deposits of gold in South Africa uh, in the place that is now called the Abzu. And uh, there are mine shafts there today that, that date to be over 200,000 years old. And they mined the gold for about 144,000 years uh, before they mutinied and just decided the work was too hard and then created uh, mankind uh, basically initially just to mine gold for them. And then, of course, some of the uh, humans were then moved to the EDN, uh, 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 the Sumerian tablets referred to it as the E.D.I. and the E.D.N., which, of course, is then translated in our Bible, the Garden of Eden. Uh, uh, but now I think they still uh, are, are, are have a different agenda for the gold. I think now, if you look at the Book of Revelations, it talks about how um, uh, God is going to. Uh, bring down a city called New Jerusalem to earth, and that uh, New Jerusalem will be the residing place of God and mankind throughout eternity. And then if you go on a little further in Revelations, you see that New Jerusalem is actually a city that's about 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high. It's actually mm -hmm. a cube and the Bible says it's made of pure gold, and that the streets are pure gold, and I believe that the Anunnaki indeed are in the process of uh, producing that city as we speak, and I believe that that city, once placed on Earth, will be underground. Underground. Okay, let's just, just um, I want to take it a different direction here. There's some key figures in the Bible that we need to discuss, and I in, in reading the book... I came across the figure of Jesus, and we all know, you know, the place of that Jesus had in the Bible. And you sort of ascribe to Jesus a totally different perspective that that uh, most of us are, are generally accustomed to believing who this man was. And how do you how do you see how this this individual fit into your scenario? I think for Christians and and the religions that do uh, believe in a Messiah, 
that that is by far the most difficult hurdle to overcome. It certainly was for me, uh, uh, and I think it will be for most. But I believe that the evidence is abundant today that Jesus was actually um, part Anunnaki, part human, that he, uh, uh, a young Israeli female who we call Mary, was artificially inseminated with uh, the sperm of Enlil, the other half-brother who was actually in charge of the Earth Project all along and who actually wrote the Bible and most of the time when the Bible is referring to God, it's referring to Enlil, although there are other Anunnaki that seem to uh, be God in certain instances, but Yahweh is kind of a composite of about four or five of them. But Enlil is the main one, and the Bible is written from the perspective of Enlil, and I believe that Jesus was simply a brainwashed, if I can use that word, uh, from childhood to believe that indeed he was the Son of God, and um, he was given um, uh, what could be called superhuman powers. He could do amazing things and uh, had amazing technology at, uh, um, that was available to him that was not available to to the rest of humans. But uh, um, I believe today that he will return. I believe he probably was crucified. I believe he will return, and I believe that uh, they certainly have the technology today, and have, uh, we've got evidence of, uh, of much of it today, that there will be marvelous signs and things in the sky, and that he will return just as the Bible describes and greatly deceive mankind again. And be in charge of the new world order, and uh, and if we allow that to happen, life on Earth will become extremely difficult. Wow, that's a, that's quite a, a picture that you you, you paint. Uh, the the current reality of of what we're living through in our day to day, this is the world that we all exist in, is pretty complex. Uh, but what you're suggesting suggesting is that in essence um, history is going to have to be rewritten and I think maybe when we come back I'd like to get your comment on if if this moves forward and it becomes ingrained into the into the social order how is history going to be rewritten and who's going to write it and what's that going to be like so maybe we can just after the break we can have a look at that okay so you stay put uh, uh, Dr. Pruitt and we're going to have a look at that right after this Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Just in a few minutes that we have left, we're talking to Dr. Jack Pruitt, uh, author of The Grandest Deception. Uh, doctor, just before we wrap things up, uh, what I want to do is, is, is sort of just get your comment on 
you know, this is information that we can't cover in 45 minutes. It's, it's absolutely astounding. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it's very difficult to wrap your, your head around, at least mine anyways. Uh, if, if we do need to rewrite history, I mean, how is this going to go down if this information comes out that, that all of the history that we live with for eons and eons is just going to come cascading down around our shoulders? Um, how, how do you think uh, humanity and the social order will react to that? I think it will be rewritten, actually, uh, Victor. I, I think that we have to remember that the Bible is a story um, uh, from Enlil's perspective, and certainly his half-brother, Enki, I don't think agrees with with the script written uh, in the Bible at all. Uh, <clears throat> I think that, uh, um, that the Bible is a story about this family feud between these two half-brothers, and that they disagree about um, how things uh, should have been done all along, as well as what the outcome will be. I do believe that uh, mankind is going to wake up and realize uh, that uh, we are eternal spiritual beings, and interestingly enough, Jesus himself says in the Bible that we can do all the things that he did, and even greater things than he did. And I believe we certainly have that capability. I believe that each and every one of us have that capability uh, once we free ourselves from all this false information and uh, and that we learn the truth and we develop the capabilities that we have. I think that uh, actually we not only can compete with the Anunnaki and the evil plans that Enlil has for mankind, that we can uh, uh, defeat that, alter that, and, and change that whole uh, scenario. But I think we have to do a few things. We have to uh, we have to eliminate the monetary system so they don't control all the money. Uh, we have to uh, learn to become honest. Uh, we're never going to progress as a race of beings, in my opinion, until we learn that mm-hmm. that there's great value in honesty and that uh, we can't even communicate with each other until we learn to be honest. Uh, I think we've got to develop spiritually and. Uh, and I don't think we're going to change the process at all as long as we play by their rules. Uh, I think that the way we change that process is through the spiritual process, not through the political, legal, or any of these uh, nonsensical forms of government that they've put in place. If you look at our own U.S. government, it's all based on keeping us uh, at discord with each other. Well, I think that that's you know one of the key now, things. All that, I yeah. think, has to be altered, mm-hmm. and I think it will be in time. Okay. Well, well I want to thank you for... Um, do you have a website that we could go to to find out more about your book? Yes, it's uh, just thegrandestdeception.com. Uh, I have placed my email address at the end of the book. I welcome people to contact me, and uh, I would... <laughs> I certainly don't have all the answers. I would welcome any input that anybody um, has and uh, uh, very interested in uh, talking to people and have fortunately been able to do so around the world who are beginning to uh, change their opinions about some of these things. Well, thank you very much for joining us this evening, Dr. Jack Pruitt, author of The Grandest Deception. And we'll be right back here on The Conspiracy Show uh, to talk to Jason Martell and extending our evening regarding ancient aliens. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now. 
at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. I think what first sparked my interest in the field of ufology would have to do with the structures on Mars and NASA's explanation that these are all natural objects. Nothing anomalous to be seen here, but the data clearly shows something else that anyone with two eyes can tell there's something there. Based on the evidence, as far as dealing with just the structures on Mars, I'd have to say, obviously NASA knows something, or maybe they're just being hesitant in telling us what they really know. There's probably something there that NASA themselves are trying to figure out what's going on, and so telling the public, here's something interesting, but we don't have all the details, isn't something that they can do. Maybe they know something in a sense that they're trying to come up with data to show us a case history of where we are now, because obviously there's something going on that they don't feel comfortable telling open, uh, you know, openly about. Something going on that we're not being told about. Well, well, the last uh, 45 minutes has convinced me that uh, there's something else going on also. And uh, to continue that dialogue, that conversation, we have on the line Jason Martell. Jason, for over the past 15 years, uh, has been one of the leading researchers and lecturers specializing in ancient civilization technologies. Jason's research has been featured worldwide on numerous television and radio networks such as the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and the Science Fiction Channel and BPC and others. Today, Mr. Martell is working on his next scientific recreation of ancient technology based on data obtained from the Sumerian cuneiforms cylinder sealed 3,000 B.C. years ago. And this is uh, quite an extension of, of the kinds of things we were just talking about earlier in regards to how ancient civilizations have been brought into contact with technologies and, and, and ways of knowing that uh, currently are available to us. And how did these civilizations come about knowing these things? So to, uh, to get us through this journey, we welcome here on the line Jason Martell. Jason, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a real journey for me to investigate some of this stuff over the past little while because I've always had a, a an idea in the back of my mind and being someone who's been in, involved in the UFO uh, ET field for a number of years, uh, probably th over 30 years myself, eventually, wow. yeah, well, it's just part of the whole... Uh, Part of the whole uh, scenario that uh, once you get involved in this kind of thing, you, you keep on digging and you find out exactly um, what might be going on that's going on behind the scenes. But my, my first inclinations when I first was involved with this was this was just something that was going on on a day-to-day -day basis and these things were flitting around in the sky and, you know, we see them and then we don't see them. But eventually I got to the opinion in my own mind that um, there, there may be something more historical to all of this. And that these things might be going on, um, you know, not just today, but not just 15 years ago, but not just 47 years ago back in Roswell. But these things may very well have happened literally hundreds of thousands of years ago. And that's a very disturbing thought. And uh, what you've been bringing to me is, is some information that this has been going on for a long, long time. Just, can you give us an indication as to, in your own mind, as to how long this has been happening, these ancient civilizations off-world visiting us? Well, you know, I've tried to really stay on the cutting edge of research regarding the question of where do we come from. And I must say that some of the most recent lines of research that have been intriguing me aren't so much specific towards the alien question, but more towards the question of our understanding of time. And so 
what I think is is how far this goes back, or you know how how deep does this cycle, is that it, it appears that all all the ancient cultures were aware of a much larger cycle of time, and used certain monuments as markers built to explain to us that they were aware of this much larger cycle of time, and so there there's some interesting reoccurring events that take place based on this larger cycle of time that all the ancients were aware of, and even Plato referred to it as the Great Year. So what I've really become interested in is trying to figure out why the ancients went to such great lengths to build some of these megalithic monuments around the world, but also why they align them to certain constellations in the sky. There had to have been a reason. So what you're saying is that some of these uh, huge mammoth uh, monuments have been built not only to, I guess, uh, you know, testify or build a bit of a testimony to the civilization that built them, but they're also being built to align themselves with uh, certain, you know, star form, uh, formations in, in, the, in the constellations of the, in, the, in the sky? Exactly. Well, I can give you a couple of examples, uh, but really the bigger picture is this, for me, is trying to understand why this pattern has been taking place. So as an example, the pyramids in Egypt, um, we know that they were more than likely built around 2500 B.C. However, using star charts and constellation mapping programs, we can see that the stars above Egypt at 10,500 B.C., well into the past, uh, before what we would think the Egyptians were around, well in their past, it seems that the Egyptian pyramids actually aligned to the Orion constellation in the year 10,500 B.C. And at that exact date, the constellation of Leo is, is lied, uh, lying directly in the gaze of the Sphinx, which, of course, is in the shape of a lion. So Egypt, uh, you know, Giza specifically, is a great example of where we can look how not only is it aligned to a star constellation, but it's happening at a certain point in time, way further in our past than the Egyptians should have been making star alignments if it was built in 2500 B.C. Why would they have it aligned to 10,500 B.C.? So that might be kind of an overcomplicated example to ingest, but Egypt is a great example that shows there are alignments taking place with terrestrial monuments that align to specific constellations marking a much larger understanding of a cycle of time that repeats. You, you mentioned the, the number in some of your work of 26,000. Uh, what's that, 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 that number seems to be key in your research. What, what does that number represent? Well, th- there's, a, there's an interesting sway in the, in the knowledge flow in that uh, there is a, a word called precession in that most of the ancients were aware of a much larger cycle of time and mainstream science up to around this point has thought that the reason why there's this much larger cycle of time, which we called precession, uh, they thought it was because of the, the Earth's tilt, and there's a certain wobble to our Earth that over a much larger cycle of time, which they recorded to be around 26,000 years, mm-hmm. scientists guesstimate that it's because of this wobble in our Earth that changes in rotation just one or two degrees Every 26,000 year, uh, every 26,000 years, hence giving us the movement of the ages as we pass through different constellations in the 12 houses of the zodiac. 
And so there's a new model that says it's not because of just a wobble in our Earth, but it's actually because we have two suns, and that our sun and all the planets that are going around our sun are actually moving through space in orbit around a second sun. So that's where it really started to get interesting for me, is because now we have new science coming out that proves or is leading in that direction that most solar systems we've been imaging externally from our own are binary, and they actually have more than one sun. It's a common thing now that mm-hmm. most external solar systems are actually binary, so that leads to the question that more than likely we are also a binary solar system. So, so what you're saying is not only do we have, um, have we come to that conclusion now, what you're also saying is that uh, you know, races like the Sumerians and even you know, before that, uh, certain civilizations, th- these civilizations came to this conclusion thousands of years ago. They, they, they realized that then. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's correct. Right. And so just to break it down as a simple analogy, there's, there's astronomical cycles that affect us now that we can see within our own lifespan, which is as the sun rotates on its axis, we go through a night and day cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's split into a 24-hour period of 12 hours of going into the light, becoming day, and then going into darkness. And it turns out that the orbit of our two suns mimic this same pattern, where it's actually not a 26,000-year orbit, it's a 24,000-year cycle. And, and the reason why they realize this is that two suns orbiting each other, when they're at their closest point, they speed up. And then as they start to go away from each other, they slow down. And as they come closer again, they speed up. And so the mean average of their orbit calculates to around 24,000 years. So this is a much larger cycle of time that is hard for us to comprehend. But if we realize that the first astronomical cycle of just the Earth spinning on its axis mm-hmm. causes us to have day and night. People go to sleep. Uh, all the animals, you know, sprout in the morning and, and wake up. And there's a much larger cycle beyond that one, which is our yearly orbit, where our Earth going around the sun causes animals to migrate, plants to sprout. So it's a a much larger cycle that happens on a yearly basis. Well, all the ancient cultures said there was a third cycle of our two suns, and in their great orbit, it's a repeating cycle that happens every 24,000 years, and it seems to coincide with the rise and fall of civilization here on Earth. So that was a really long-winded question (laughs) of me trying to explain some of my most recent research where I try to look back in our past and say, where do we really come from? I'm seeing a repeating pattern that there's a much larger epoch of of time that repeats here on Earth at a 24,000-year scale. So I'm still trying to piece it together, and in our brief interview tonight, I can pinpoint some of the evidence along the way that's kind of led me in the direction of what I'm doing. And yes, my research started in our modern-day Iraq today, then was called Sumer around 6,000 years ago, uh, is where we first started to find the first complete civilization that was called Sumer. And a lot of their written texts and things that they've left us were in stone form, you know, written in stone, Mm -hmm. and it's unchanged to this day. And it, you know, talks about some very interesting information about where we come from, and, uh, who, uh, who brought us to be who we are today. Well, let's just uh, hold on that point right now just so that we can uh, sort of digest that because it's, it is a big question. So let's have a look at that just after the break here. So stay with us, Jason, and we'll be back here on The Conspiracy Show. 
From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Good evening and welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett, uh, who is in Greece right now, probably settling out the, uh, his final accounts at the, the local bank and bringing home his, uh, his well-earned cash. Maybe back here to Toronto, we don't know. But uh, Richard will be back here next week here in the big pilot's chair. This evening, right now, we're sitting in here talking with uh, Jason Martell, an ancient civilizations researcher. And we've been talking about ancient civilizations and what they know about constellations and all of the, the extremely complex things that, uh, that we know today uh, seem to be almost common knowledge uh, thousands of years ago. And I think Jason was alluding to the fact earlier that there is a race called the uh, Sumerians, who were well in touch with all this information. And uh, I guess the question that I have in my mind is, they had this information, but how did they get it? And where did they get it from? Is it something indigenous to them, or was it brought to them from, from uh, some off-world civilization? And uh, Jason, sort of enlighten us. Like, the, the Sumerians, who were they, and how did they get all this in- incredible information? Of course. So what we're talking about is, is a civilization uh, that is loca- located where our current modern-day Iraq is, but we're just rolling back the, the clock uh, to around 3800 B.C. So that people understand the time scale, you realize that we're roughly 2,000 years removed from when the time of Jesus being here, so that, you know, uh, B.C. to A.D., being in 20, 2011, so roughly 2,000 years removed. Right. So if you go back another 2,000 years from that point, you're at the Jewish God of Abraham. Go back another 2,000 years at 3,800 B.C. to 4,000 B.C., roughly 6,000 years ago, and now you're at the Sumerian culture. And what I found really interesting about the Sumerian culture is that, you know, I was raised as a Christian, and a lot of the things that were talked about in the Bible uh, were, at least for me, hard concepts to grasp. And so later in life... uh, just through coincidence of doing research, I found out that most of the Sumerian tablets that are still in stone were actually much more in-depth versions of biblical tales told in our Old Testament and in our New Testament, in the New King James Version. So for me, I started to wonder, like, well, huh, how is this possible? Where exactly, or, you know, where do we actually come from? And for me, I started to realize that the Sumerian culture, not only as far as our science and mainstream understandings go, is the oldest civilization that we have record of, literally coming right out of the Stone Age. They show up in southern Iraq 6,000 years ago, and they even had a language called cuneiform script, where, you know, right out of the Stone Age, there's this, this alphabetical language that they invent and start to utilize with no previous cultures leading up to it, just boom, there it is. And we think we're cool with our uh, alphabet and its limited letters. The cuneiform script of the Sumerians consisted of over 400 characters. And this just came, so out, very, of, and this just came out of nowhere? That's right. It just came out of literally sprung up uh, overnight in the sense that there were no preceding civilizations before them that led up to this. And what's really interesting about the Sumerian culture is we've unearthed a great set of cities and artifacts that we still have today, and many of these, again, echo well-known biblical tales. Um, for, as an, for an example, 
in the early 1900s, the British Museum was doing a lot of excavations in Iraq and started to unearth a lot of these various artifacts and things. And one of the assistants to the uh, British Museum, his name was George Smith, started to uncover this one tablet and realized that while trying to translate it, it was actually speaking of a great flood, that a Sumerian man was chosen by a god to build a great craft because there was going to be a, a large flood. And it went, it went into a much greater detail in explaining why there was a great flood because of this other large planet that would be passing by Earth and would cause a great ice sheet in, north, uh, in the North Antarctic to crack off and instantly raise the water levels. So this tablet, uh, you know, George Smith found very intriguing and, you know, threw his hands up saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I found. And even to this day, it's stored in the British Museum on display as the flood tablet. Mm -hmm. So I started to realize that many of the things told in the Bible are actually echoed in these original Sumerian tales. And for me, that started to raise a lot of questions. Uh, and in looking into this further, it turns out that we attribute to the Sumerian culture over 100 of the first that we still use today for modern civilization. Things like writing, uh, math, agriculture, astronomy, the systems of courts and laws, uh, kingship, all of these things seem to magically originate in Sumer. And if you were to ask a Sumerian man if they were alive, say, how is it that you know all of this information? They wrote down and explained that all that they know, they were taught by the Anunnaki. And that term in English simply meant those who from heaven come to earth. <laughs> so you're saying that the Sumerians were somehow... Um, uh, inter, you know, interjected with information or in, injected with information from an off-world civilization that somehow spawned uh, what they began to proffer throughout the world. Well, it's a, it's a very complex topic, and I'll try and skim around some of the, the edges of this, you know, conversation for tonight. But mm -hmm. in essence, what the creation tales written by the Sumerians explain is that another race came here for their own reasons of harvesting uh, gold and precious minerals that they found here on Earth, didn't like mining the gold that they found uh, deep within the ground here, and decided to fashion a worker being to help them mine the gold. And such as this process explains uh, in our in our modern day version of the Adam and Eve tale, where they created a man, eventually a woman, and and gave them knowledge, and eventually they you know spread around the Earth. But there are these tales told in the Sumerian version that echo the biblical tale, only it's recorded in stone, and it goes into much more detail explaining where exactly these beings came from, and the knowledge that they departed to us in forms of, let's say, astronomical information, really do start to raise the eyebrow with, with curiosity. For instance, the Sumerians have very accurate astronomical information. They were able to record the distance between the outer planets, what the outer planets actually look like as far as their physical color in space. Mm -hmm. and, and we didn't even know these things until we had sent the Galileo and Voyager probes in the late 70s and early 80s, first taking the, color uh, the first taken color images of our outer planets, and it all matches the Sumerian descriptions from thousands of years ago. See, that's what really so kind of, of those, yeah. yeah, many of those types of things really start to raise a lot of questions. That, that's what really kind of surprises me that you know we've got all this information gleaned over the past you know 
little while that uh, you know we've 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 come into contact with some of the things you're talking about, but then there's the realization that this stuff is this is this is no big great news. This has been going on for a long, long time, and it I don't know. It just seems to turn everything on its head when you start thinking about what we are as a technological race of of beings who've. We think we're that advanced, but boy, oh boy, this stuff has been talked about thousands of years beforehand. You know what? Let's just kind of uh, stay with that after the break here, because I do want to extend the conversation regarding, you know, what we know now and what these people knew then. So uh, stay with us, Jason, and we'll be back just uh, in a few moments. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light. Call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. I just finished reading a book uh, just about three weeks ago by Lloyd Pye, and the, the book is called Everything You Know is Wrong, Book One, Human Origins. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a quite a lengthy tome it's about uh, I don't know 340 pages or so and uh, when you're when you're brought up to believe a certain thing after a while um, sometimes you question it but then when someone comes along and says that all of the stuff that you've learned over the past 35 40 50 years is wrong it's quite something to to deal with that it's a it's a it's a position and it's almost like floating in space you just don't know what to believe after a while and this evening's guest Jason Martell and even the, our previous guest Dr. Jack Pruitt they're turning everything that we know on its head and uh, I don't know about you but it's a little bit disturbing but Regardless, I want to pursue this. I want to find out a little bit more about why this information is so important and where we're going to go with it. What, what will it mean if, uh, if history has to be rewritten? And according to Jason and to Dr. Jack Pruitt, uh, history is in a very, very tenuous position. One of the things, Jason, that I want to uh, discuss with you is, okay, fine, we have the Sumerians and they did what they did and all the different races, but then what we also have way back then are other cultures in different parts of the planet who kind of came up with be it monuments or information or uh, cultural artifacts or cultural beliefs that were very similar to uh, each other or among all of these in the, the set of information so we didn't have any internet we didn't have any television where this information could be transmitted but each culture in some way or another came up with the same, the same information Let's try to sort that out for us well, one of the things that has intrigued me, too, about the question of how far back does this go in time is that with an understanding that there's a much larger cycle that does repeat at a 24,000-year scale, I started to realize that, you know, things like we hear of an Atlantis, that there was some Atlantean culture that was very advanced, well deep into our past, beyond 10, maybe 15,000 years ago, but they're gone, and that continent mysteriously sunk or somehow is gone. And to me, it makes more sense that if there was an advanced civilization in our past, which to me makes logical sense that there's a 24,000-year cycle and that this, you know, our epoch of civilization goes much further back than just 6,000 years, but maybe does go back well far into the past, uh, but it's very difficult for us to, you know, see this pattern repeat since it's such a, it's such a large scale of time. 
You know, it it does really kind of boggle the mind to say that. Um, How how could the Mayans, for example, and the Egyptians possibly have known um, the same sort of things that the Sumerians did? Well, you know, I think just to to add on to what I was saying is that I think it's very possible that there there was some, you know, lost, advanced civilization that, you know, left us this information, but we've, we've, you know, for whatever reason, um, cannot find this complete civilization that was off the books of recorded history. But what we do find are megalithic monuments that are on each continent around the world and seem to predate a time of, you know, 10 to 15,000 years ago. And what we found is that several new sites around the world, places like Gobekli Tepe in, uh, in Turkey, or well-known sites like Nazca in Peru, various locations from Stonehenge to Giza to Nazca, they're all have, they all have evidence of technology and math and science built into the way they've built these monuments that predate all of these cultures uh, at the times of when they were possibly built, like the Egyptians building the pyramids. Uh, it seems like many of these monuments point to a much earlier time in our past where if there was ever a great civilization like uh, the Atlantean culture, they wouldn't have been on one continent. They would have been a global civilization. And that's exactly what we see around the world is lost monuments that might have been part of some advanced civilization that did exist off the recorded books of time, and then preceding cultures built upon them their various cities and structures and have added to them over time. So then if these, these civilizations did what you're, you're, what you're describing. They built all of these monuments and developed these different technologies and so on and so forth, and then something happened. And then it all, did, did it all sort of come to a crashing end, and then we began from point zero to develop what we know right now? Uh, it, it's very confusing. That why would this information not have somehow become residual in, in, our, in our historical records one way or another? Well, it almost seems like there's a pattern here on Earth of us going into the Dark Ages and then going into the Golden Ages. It seems like we're just coming out of, of the Dark Ages again and going back into the upswing of, of, of towards the Golden Age. And this repeating pattern is something that it's, you know, uh, interesting to look at how if there was ever some Atlantean advanced culture, well, we've lost that knowledge. And we're now just coming out of an age that things like Copernicus realizing that we actually orbit the sun and not, you know, that not that everything orbits around the Earth. All these things Mm -hmm. are new information to us that we might just be rediscovering. Uh, And and it, it seems like there's a pattern that does repeat based on us knowing this much larger cycle of time. And so things like 2012, what's going to happen next year? Is there the end of time as the Mayans knew it? Well, no, it's just that a lot of these cultures, like the Mayans, were aware of this much larger cycle of time and recorded specific points along the way. Uh, And and again, even built monuments that point to specific times of, in space and time, point to specific constellations where these alignments repeat and and the alignments take place. Uh, on a repeating cycle, but over thousands of years. Um, a good analogy, too, to think about is um, there's an insect, for instance, called the mayfly, mm-hmm. and it only lives 24 hours. So if it's born on a cloudy day, 
it might never see things like sunshine or a cool breeze. So it's very possible that all the ancients tell us this much larger cycle of time, there will be things in humanity's evolution in this cycle as we keep going, you know, in this repeating pattern where things will just be easier for humanity to learn or we, we become in a much easier state to uh, evolve and learn things. And right now we're just now starting to discover uh, new information and our sciences are progressing very fast once again. Yeah, it just seems that <laughs> it seems almost a, like a useless effort that, you know, we, you know, find out all this information way back when and then uh, it gets lost and then we rediscover it and then we lose it again and then we rediscover it. Is this the cycle of things or or, or what? Let, let's look at that question after after the break here, uh, Jason, because this is an intriguing question of, of how humanity evolves in terms of, of, of what it knows and what it will know and what it did know and what it forgot. So stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Well, I don't know about you, but this is, has definitely been an education for me this evening. Uh, rethinking what you believe, what you internally accept as the truth. And uh, here with us this evening is Jason Martell to talk to us uh, a little bit about uh, what we've been through, what we've learned over the, over the ages through thousands of years, and from what I'm hearing tonight, what we've forgotten. We've, uh, we're a civilization that seems to be uh, almost uh, amnesiac about what we, what we know about our, our reality. Um, Jason, you know, all this information, you know, there's no way that we can cover it all in 35 or 40 minutes in an interview like this. But the fact of the matter is that um, I did some reading myself, or less so, with uh, Dr. Jonathan Gray. And he indicated to me uh, in his research that things like, you know, uh, machine-cut optical lenses, instruments for brain surgery, sound waves that open doors, uh, pregnancy tests to, uh, you know, determine whether or not a woman was pregnant, and even the sex of, of, uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the fetus could be determined up to 2,000 years ago, maybe even more. Um, these kinds of things, I'm not sure exactly how, how on the mark or off the mark this fellow is, but the fact of the matter is, and with the information I just described and what you're talking to us, this is not in the mainstream at all. Science says no to this. What's your response to that? Well, you know what's really great about that is that, yes, for the most part, mainstream science draws a line in the dirt and says, well, we're not willing to step over that line. There are no extraterrestrials or aliens. Um, but what we do see is that this type of research where we look back into the past and try and interpret information left to us by the ancients, it seems that almost every day or every week something new in mainstream science helps us reconfirm this lost ancient knowledge. Um, as an example, you know, the, the going back to the Sumerians and the story of the Anunnaki, they actually said that they originally started mining gold in southern Africa, and that this is where they first created the original worker being to do this mining of the gold for them. Mm -hmm. The creation tales go on from there. Well, it turns out just recently that science confirmed the idea that man came out originally that looks like us today out of southern Iraq, and they found out that there's something called the mitochondrial ease, that the, the, the female that we have today, the modern female, has a certain type of gene in her called the mitochondrial DNA that's inherently passed down to females. 
And it's, again, the signature of what we look like today, not the Australopithecine or Mm -hmm. ancient Neanderthal man. How we look today shows up 300,000 years ago in southern Southern Africa. So there are things where our modern science starts to make new discoveries or uh, learns new things with our limited views of science today, and then we find out that this is somewhat represented or lost knowledge found in some of the ancient cultures or texts, but they were trying to use their limited understanding of knowledge, or however they interpreted it at that time, to convey that to us. Like, for an example, putting wings on all the various gods that were visiting us, or showing the craft that the Anunnaki came in as having a winged disc. They didn't understand the power of flight, or technologically how flight was possible, but they tried to convey to us the understanding that certain beings or objects had the power of flight. Well, that's you know that's something that's uh, you know to, to me is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, actually, we've got a call here on the line from Lisa, Lisa in Scarborough. Um, good evening, Lisa. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this question, but. Um, I know the gentleman puts a lot of uh, faith in modern science, and we need we seem to know so much now about Sumerians, the Anunnaki. Mm-hmm. Yet, has science, um, because due to this lost city of Atlantis, I went and did a search uh, online, and I stumbled upon the. African albino, and I did some researching, and it would seem to be, science doesn't seem to be able to answer, why is it albinos, if they, you know, cluster long enough, they will eventually start to bring about like a white race, and... The white race doesn't seem to be able to make a black baby, but blacks seem to be able to make these albino babies who eventually, when they gather together, how come, you know, science hasn't focused on what's on Earth here as opposed to all these hairy, fairy, little uh, Sumerian... Anunnaki things. Yeah. Jason, you want to share any insights on that? Sure. Well, I think Lisa's question is is that, you know, there, there are a lot of things here on Earth with our own genetics that we still don't understand, and why is it that we would look to space or look to aliens and things like that? And the answer that I would give is just simply that our limited views of science and the tools that we have today try to answer those questions. Mainstream science takes one approach, And there are non-mainstream approaches, which I, as an independent researcher, take to try Mm -hmm. and figure some of those questions out. And I I definitely think that there there is some interesting things that have happened in our past, not just as one species, as, you know, white or black or Asian, Indian. Uh, That's a different thing to crack in trying to figure out why there are different variations within our race. But it seems that from a science level of, where do we come from as just a, a species? Some of these questions do have answers that our modern science is trying to answer, but I just see a pattern that when we, as soon as we find those answers, they lead to bigger questions, 
which seem to bring up topics that even many of our ancient cultures were aware of. And we're now trying to understand all of the tales and things that they gave us information on topics like where do we come from, instead of looking at it as mythology, maybe they're rooted in fact, but we have to try and understand how they were conveying this information, because they used analogies and things at the time, like putting wings on people to say that they had the power of flight, right. without understanding actually how they would have the ability to actually physically fly. I guess the, the, the other question, to extend, uh, I guess, Lisa's question, is do you think, Jason, eventually, when I talk about mainstream science, uh, you know, I look at ma- mainstream media too, but this looking at mainstream science, would there be a silver bullet, something that comes along uh, in terms of what you're saying, the context of what you're saying, that will irrefutably uh, convince mainstream science to say, hey, listen, maybe we have to rethink everything? What might that silver bullet be? I mean, speculate for a second. Well, that's a difficult one because of the fact that, you know, anything that we do have occurring in our modern times, there there's a whole other faction of the UFO cover-up, and the way that mainstream science operates is at a very steady progression. And anything that would try and disrupt that is going to receive a lot of, you know, uh, hesitation. So up to this point, the topic of do we have extraterrestrials here on Earth, Mm -hmm. or have we been visited by them, uh, is not an easy question to answer because of the, the stigmata or stipulations put in place saying that, oh, this can't be possible. However, when anyone actually chooses as an independent just to look into the topic of UFOs and aliens, is there a cover-up, it turns out that you know this has been going on by world governments for at least the last 50 years, documented, mm-hmm. of doing very esoteric research at the highest levels of Department of Defense, National Security, where they do look into these topics and are very interested. So, Unfortunately, it's very hard to discern where exactly we're going to go with this or what the silver bullet might be that would come Mm -hmm. out because it's going to be very easy to refute any of these, even to the point where anyone who's studied modern ufology, we've gotten to the point where, at least for me personally, if there was all of a sudden a huge uh, alien invasion announced on the news and you walk outside and you see a spaceship over your city, uh, I almost would question that. Mm-hmm. It would be like, well, wait a minute, this can't be happening. There has to be some agenda behind why we're seeing this. Jason uh, Martell, we need to yes. uh, we need to say goodbye. But uh, well, thank I, you I, very I, much for having yeah, me on. I'd unwillingly, I'd like to continue this conversation for the rest of the evening. Thank you very much for being with uh, 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 a website that you could throw at us. Sure, website. You can just Google me. Keep it simple, Jason Martell. Type that into Google, and you can find my various websites, books, and mobile apps. Terrific. Thanks for being with us, Jason, and we'll talk again, okay? Thank you. You take care now. Bye-bye. Jason Martell, ancient alien researcher. Uh, Stay with us as The Conspiracy Show continues. I'm Victor Vigiani. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740, To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Quite the evening so far, and thank you for staying with us, for all you Nighthawks out there. Um, 
Just want to remind you that uh, Richard will be back. Richard Serrett will be back next week here on The Conspiracy So, uh, sitting here right in the, in the big chair. And I'm sure he's enjoying a, a well-deserved rest, well-deserved vacation with his family. Right now, we want to welcome to the program uh, a guest who I'm very familiar with, uh, Stephen G. Bassett. He's a leading advocate for ending the 64-year-old government-imposed truth embargo regarding an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He is the executive director of the Paradigm Research Group and the Political Action Committee, XPACT, and the executive producer of the X Conference. He has spoken to audiences around the world about the information disclosure process and how that has not been released to the public and how for some reason the media and government refuse to let go of this and keep a stranglehold around this information. Mr. Bassett, good evening. Hi, Victor. It's good to be with you. Yeah, we've um, we've been on a bit of a journey this evening in the past and uh, we've talked to a few um, anthropologists who've talked about uh, the alien presence uh, in, the, in the past, different kinds of things that have gone on in our past. This evening with you, uh, Stephen, I want to sort of venture forward into the present and into the future about where the heck we're going with this. And you've been very instrumental over the past uh, month or so in inaugurating a petition to the White House. Uh, first of all, just give us an idea of what the White House did to um, put in place a process where... Uh, Americans and even other people throughout uh, in other countries could uh, petition the White House to investigate things that uh, they want to know about. So just give us an idea what this position, uh, the petition process is all about. Sure. Uh, the White House launched a petition initiative called We the People uh, on September the 22nd. Um, it's part political, part trying to play open, transparent government and so forth. It's, it's, it's commendable, no problem. Uh, I learned about it about a month in advance and realized what could be done here. Uh, and so when the petition process uh, went active, um, within an hour, we had a, the disclosure petition up. Uh, and the way the rules work is simply this. You, you uh, had to get 5,000 signatures within 30 days. And if you did, you would get a response from the White House, from the, from the Obama administration, a formal response. Wonderful. Um, as it happened, they got almost 14,000 petitions in the first 30 or 40 days, which scared them, and they were worried they might have to respond to thousands of petitions. So they increased the threshold to 25,000 signatures in 30 days, but not retroactive. As a result, the disclosure petition, which got 5,000 signatures in four days, uh, met the threshold and was responded to on November the 4th. Now, this petition, as I've, I'll quickly read it, uh, and the information about all of this, uh, the info site for all of this is disclosurepetition.info. That's where you can follow this whole process. Uh, was written this way. We, the undersigned, strongly urge the President of the United States to formally acknowledge an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race and immediately release into the public domain all files from all agencies and military services rele relevant to this phenomenon. Th this was not a UFO petition, and it wasn't intended to be. UFO, this acronym, is, is not an asset. It's a liability. Mm -hmm. It's the language of the past. Uh, it's part of the truth embargo itself. An unidentified flying object could be any number of things. It could be a flock of geese. It could be one of these ubiquitous Chinese lanterns. It could be a frozen turkey shot out of a cannon. Right? So, if a military or commercial pilot sees a 40-foot disc off their cockpit or off their wing, 
sometimes even maneuvering around the plane, and they report it. What is it? It's a UFO, right? Which is to say that in, in the, within the context of the truth embargo, a 40-foot disc is, is no different than a flying frozen turkey. Right? And who knows? Maybe the pilot was suffering from oxygen deprivation and mistook a 40-foot disc for a flying frozen turkey. This is the problem. And uh, th- these are the rules, you might say, that were set up as part of this truth embargo. And Paradigm Research Group has no intention of playing by the government's rules. You have a disc off the wing of your plane. There are three possibilities. It's a craft, an anti-gravitic propulsion craft, that has human beings piloting it, or non-human beings piloting it, piloting it, or it's a drone, and there's nobody in it. That's what it is. Or it's a frozen turkey. Or it's a frozen turkey. And so... You know, this, and so consequently, you have you know thousands of pilot sightings that have accumulated in one particularly important file. The press doesn't cover it. The media doesn't deal with it. Uh, the, 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 White, the White House doesn't deal with it. The Defense Department has nothing to say about it. It's obviously ridiculous, but that's that's the rules of the game. Not going to play it. Play by these rules. So we submitted this petition, and we got what we wanted. We got a response from the White House on November the fourth. Right of 2011. Mm-hmm. Now, this response was from the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and uh, it was better than I could have hoped for. Uh, and furthermore, why so? it was signed why, off on by the head of the OSTP. You can be sure of that. Yeah, why, why was it better than you anticipated? The fact that they just acknowledged it, or, or what they said? Well, one of the options they had was not to respond, but I knew that would be almost very difficult for them to do. Mm-hmm. Was, to not respond would have given the, the issue even more gravitas, and the press would have been very intrigued by that. But they could have crafted a response which might have given them some maneuverability, a little room to, to uh, uh, function. But instead, um, a White House researcher wrote a, uh, about, a, I don't know, it's about nine-paragraph, fairly short response, in which they said, without equivocation, that uh, there is no evidence that any life exists outside our planet or ever has been evidence or that extraterrestrial presence has contacted or engaged any member of the human race, period. No evidence now in the past. Well, this is, of course, ridiculous. There's a massive amount of evidence. Now, whether the gentleman that wrote this knows that isn't really important. What is important is that finally, after 64 years we were able to get the White House or the executive branch of the United States government to go on writing with a formal position on the extraterrestrial issue, not the UFO issue. Key matter. Key. Absolutely key. They've never done this before. They've been able to skate and dodge and weave and limbo their way under this issue for six decades. The press has cooperated, no pressure, and since they had nothing nothing to say or wouldn't say anything, there was no issue. This is very similar to what happened with Area 51. When Jonathan Turley, the very fine constitutional environmental attorney based in Washington, D.C., took the case of the Area 51 workers that had been severely damaged by breathing toxic fumes from the stuff they were burning out there, because they they were completely outside of any environmental uh, oversight, so they they were burning all manner of stuff, and these guys were breathing this stuff. When they they went to court to try to uh, get some uh, compensation for these gentlemen. Steve, going to hold you there? Yeah. Yeah, just hang on a sec. We're going to just take a break and we'll be right back. It sounds like we're playing a very complicated poker game here. 
and you, you've, you're sitting there with a couple of aces in your hand waiting for the dealer to throw the next card. So let's, after the break, let's see what other card comes out here, here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. There are many among us who may agree or disagree with the approach of the We the People petition process that uh, Stephen G. Bassett initiated. The one thing for sure, absolutely sure, and I said it just before the break, that it's almost like we're playing a poker game here and we're waiting for the dealer to deal out cards. And up until now, um, there have been no cards coming. But I think what's happened here, and just my impression, Steve, and we can move this along in the, in the discussion, that we've finally been dealt a card. I'm not quite sure exactly how the White House wanted to play that card, or even if they did want to play it. But regardless of the fact they did play a card, whether they were maneuvered into playing that card or whether they did it freely, we're not quite sure. But the fact is they did it. Now, when they play that card, I think it's very significant that they did. So... Um, what are you going to do with that card? Once it's played to you, they've actually acknowledged the fact right. they've made a statement on the extraterrestrial issue. What are you going to do with that card? Well, essentially, what's happened here, let me use a slightly different analogy. It's a chess game. We've been playing a chess game with the government for 64 years. Uh, they've pretty much won that game uh, all of that time, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes by not even acknowledging there was a game to play, right. <laughs> sometimes by making secret moves, but whatever. They've won the game until now. I think this was a fatal move. Uh, on their part, uh, or as they like to say in uh, in uh, pilot training, uh, an unrecoverable error. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, what they have put their position in writing, and the pati- pos- position is indefensible. So now we go after the position, and they, they, they can't run from it. It's already there. It's on the White House website. It'll be up on the White House website for some time to come. And so now we go after the, the position itself. And I should also mention that in addition to getting this response, which was one of the key, mm-hmm. the, the, the key goal of this uh, disclosure petition, this this petition got more coverage than any of the other petitions that were submitted. Hundreds of articles were written about this disclosure petition and the White House response uh, around the world in 20 or so languages. Uh, I've gotten some feedback on that. Hundreds of articles, and about 100 of them are archived on the disclosurepetition.info site. So we got tremendous public awareness uh, to the disclosure issue. Obviously, the White House response offended hundreds of millions of people. Half the American people believe the ET presence is real. Eighty percent or more think the government's not telling the truth. This is pretty much the case around the world. So they just basically irritated hundreds of millions of people. Okay, fine. Now, what's next? What's next is this. Disclosure petition two will be submitted to the We, we, uh, we the People Petition Project in the White House website on December the 1st. What's been going on in November is we're pre-promoting. We're getting the word out. We're trying to, we want to get off to a fast start, a running start. All right. And what is, what is the, what is it about disclosure petition two that's uh, important? Let me read it to you. We, the peti- we petition the Obama administration to demand a full congressional investigation of UFO ET disclosure efforts by the Clinton Office of Science and Technology Policy, the Rockefeller Initiative. Now, you're only allowed 120 characters to state your petition, and that's 120 characters. Then you get 800 characters to provide information. Mm-hmm. The information is just as important. And what that information says, and what millions of people are going to see when they go to the WhiteHouse.gov site and start browsing these petitions and looking at them, 
They will read this. In response to the disclosure petition, the OSTP stated, the U.S. government has no evidence that any life exists outside our planet or that an extraterrestrial presence has contacted or engaged any member of the human race. Question. If true, what was the OSTP investigating from March 93 to October of 1996 in concert with billionaire and Clinton friend Lawrence Rockefeller? And now we name names. Those who knew of and have not spoken publicly of this initiative include Bill Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Obama Transition Co-Chair John Podesta, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, Dr. John Gibbons, Albert Gore, and New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson. And then there are two links underneath to two sites that have the documents and the narratives that confirm the Rockefeller Initiative. One is on my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, and the other is on Grant Cameron's website, presidentialufo.com. And very quickly, Steve, just sort of just run us very quickly for the listeners who don't know about the Rockefeller Initiative. Just give us a very brief kind of outline of what that is, because it's very significant. Lawrence Rockefeller, which is familiar with the ET issue and a lot of other issues, and it tried to fund alternative thinking research, uh, was a friend of the Clintons, and he approached the Office of Science and Technology Policy in March of '93. He wanted to engage the president, provide a report, send him a letter to get the administration to reinstitute new investigations and also start releasing UFO files, which would have pretty much wrapped up the truth embargo. There hadn't been a congressional hearing since 1968, 24 years prior. Well, when he approached the OSTP, John, John Gibbons, the science advisor, wanted nothing to do with it. I mean, and I'm not surprised, right? He's going, oh, my God, what has just come in the door here? And Rockefeller did something rather in, 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 uh, interesting. I had a couple people confirm this to me. I'd like to get more confirmation of it, but I, I think it happened. Rockefeller mentions to Gibbons, either directly or through his attorney, uh, Henry Diamond, that he was seriously considering putting a full-page ad in every newspaper in the country calling for a, a renewed investigation of the phenomena and the release of all the files. Not a few papers, all of them, 5,000. I estimated the cost about then would have been about $30 million. Hmm. He was a billionaire could have paid it out of his petty cash. Immediately, Gibbons responds, oh, well, no, don't do that. Uh, no, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look into this. Let's, let's get going, right? And so off they went. And so for the next three years, there were meetings, there were reports submitted back and forth, all this, uh, with respect to, quote, this issue. Uh, and things did happen. Um, Clinton asked uh, Webster Hubble, whose name should be in this thing, but I didn't have enough characters, to look into the UFO issue at a number of locations, including the, the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. um, he signed Podesta to redesign and, and, and um, loosen up the declassification schemas that they were using to get more documents out. Um, so, and then we have documents confirming that Hillary Clinton was involved. She was informed. Her staff was informed. We have them on the net. They've been up there for years. And so here's the deal. If there's no evidence, what was going on then? In the same office that just told us there's no evidence. And more importantly, the people that were involved are not just anybody. They didn't just retire and go off and live in a farm somewhere. Bill Clinton is a major envoy for the U.S. government and a significant advisor on many things, involved in huge projects. Hillary Clinton is the Secretary of State. Obama ran the tradition, tr transition uh, team and helped to, to pick the government. He was the number one visitor to the White House in the first 90 days. Leon Panetta was the CIA director and is now Secretary of Defense. He was the chief of staff. He knew about the Rockefeller Initiative. Gibbons, of course, was the head of the OSTP. Albert Gore was vice president. Richardson was a friend of the Clintons and a, and a, and a congressman. Not one of these individuals has ever said a word publicly about this three-year effort or has ever been asked a single question. And now this whole thing, which has been around, is now parked, will be parked 
on the White House website for at least 30 days from December the 1st to December 31st. If we get the 25,000 signatures needed, it will remain up another two or three weeks waiting for the response, which will come sometime in the mid to late January. What are they going to do? This is going to, of course, attract attention. It's going to attract media. And millions of people may see this. The Rockefeller Initiative, which I always predicted, is about to come front and center. It is the Achilles heel of the truth embargo and has been since 1996. There were some 53 letters involved in all of this stuff, wasn't there? Oh, there's over 1,000 pages of documents. I've got 173 of the documents up on my website. You can go look at them anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are FOIA-obtained documents. This, this is, there's no, there's no uh, hoaxing going on here. And there's a lot more that's not on the website, studies that were done, things like that. It's all available. Happy to give it to any paper that wants them. So what we now have done is confronted the initial position with another petition that also names names and brings in major players who want to govern, want to lead, want to be important and famous, want to tell us what to do. But they can't talk about something like this. Their mouths are shut. The press goes along with it. This is a major problem for them. Now, we got 12,000 signatures the first time around. We need 25,000 this time. Some people say it's not going to happen. Not necessarily. When the petition process started on September the 22nd, very few people in the country knew it even was going on. There had been no serious publicity, only a couple of articles, no announcement from the White House. Nobody knew. It's now 60 days later. Approaching 2 million people have signed petitions. 14,000 petitions were submitted. There have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles written about the We the People section in this process. The most were generated by the disclosure petition and the White House response. Millions more are going to visit that site over the next 30 to 40 days. Plus, we have 12,000 people that are already registered. What we're asking is for people to go and register now. Don't wait for December the 1st. Go to thewhitehouse.gov. Go to We the People. Register. Give them your email. They send you a password. You log in. Sign some petitions if you want to. There's about 100 up there. And be ready to go on December the 1st. Also, tell your friends, your colleagues, use your Facebook, MySpace. Let's get ready to hit the ground running. Now, given how many more people know about the process, given how many people signed the first petition, 25,000 signatures is doable. And if we get 25,000 signatures, I can assure you the degree of difficulty the White House will face when they respond to this petition will be many times greater than the first time around. And at any time, the press may just go to these websites and say, wow, I think we should be asking some questions here. Well, that's that's the point that I wanted to try to make, uh, you know, in suggesting some things to you before. I know I've corresponded with you about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it almost seems like when you do what you're doing and, and put forward a, a motion or a petition as you're putting uh, forward to say we're asking for this or we're demanding this type of congressional uh, hearing, mm-hmm. if they say uh, yes, that's one thing. If they say no... Uh, if the if the government were to say no, we're not going to put anything in place uh, uh, to, to to look at this. What would that mean if they actually just said no? Well, here's here's the thing. A lot of people don't understand. Did I think that the White House was simply going to disclose the ET presence because twelve thousand no. people signed a petition? Of course not. Yeah, you're right. Not. Yeah. It wasn't about that. And do I think that they're going to the, the mom is going to demand an, an, a congressional investigation of the Rockefeller Initiative? No. However, they have to respond. That we're getting them on record, and we're generating a lot of awareness. We're generating media. You see, this is all directed, really, at the political media. Mm-hmm. The political media can end the truth embargo any time they want. All they have to do is start asking a few well-crafted questions to some high-level people, 
and not simply cower if they get a you know a a, a, a nasty look. Mm-hmm. That's all. One, if the media, if any one of any number of media organizations said, "Look, we're going after this story," the truth embargo I don't think would last thirty days. This thing is only holding up because the media is allowing it to hold up. And so the White House, by creating this petition process, basically handed us a tool to bring the issues out again, put them under the media's nose, only this time, because they're associated with a formal process on the White House website, initiated by the Obama administration, every editor in the country has got a perfectly reasonable hook to hang a story on. And, and could, in, in effect, be under the gun to do something. I mean, they, they, it's like it's the same sort of thing as the government. I mean, why should they say, no, we're not going to press the issue? If the information is there and the government is actually saying no, a good editor or you know, someone worth their salt in, in, in journalism will say, why is the government saying no? Well, I mean, if the, government, if, the gov- if the response is there's no reason, no basis, and nothing important about the Rockefeller Initiative, mm-hmm. my God, any reporter who has half a brain would look at the, the, just the two websites mentioned and go, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Of course it's significant. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, Hillary Clinton just had a mild, you know, just a, uh, had a period there where she did a little role-playing. She had right. a, a friend that visited the White House, and they did some role-playing with, with her kind of pretending she was talking to the, the deceased Eleanor Roosevelt. The press went crazy. Yeah. They learned about it. Oh, my God, she's channeling Eleanor Roosevelt. On and on and on and on. But if she goes and visits, you know, Lawrence a Rockefeller. <laughs> Rockefeller to talk about the E.T. issue at his own ranch, that's not news. Right. Nothing to cover there. Look, this is all a, a charade. It's a game. And as I said before, I understand that there are people that are very critical of, of these petitions and the way they're run and so forth. Let me just restate this. This isn't about UFOs anymore. Right. It's not about lights in the sky. It's about mm-hmm. lies on the ground. It's about a political policy, not a matter of science. The ET presence was proven by the early 1950s. So we're not going to play by the government's rules. We're not going to play the embargo game. We're going to do what's appropriate and go straight to the issue and force them to take positions on the, on the fundamental truth, not any abstract or highly you know, diluted ideas. Uh, we're, we're not, we're, UFOs are irrelevant. They're just not a factor anymore. This is about what are these craft. Now, if the White House wants to say, yes, there's craft up there, but they're still unidentified as to their origin, I'd, I'd accept that. That's okay, fine. Right? What else do you know, and can we help you discover their origin? Of course, yeah. But of course they're not going to say that. Right? And so, again, how did they defend the first petition with regard to this petition? Right? And when will the press put the two and two together and go, Pulitzer Prize? It's all right there for the taking, is what you're saying. I'm saying that the press could go at any time, and, and, if the, and if the White House doesn't pull this whole petition initiative off their site, I don't see how this can go on much longer, because once this petition is run its course, there'll be a third one after that, and, and the fourth one after that. Yeah. And there will always be a disclosure petition on that website, and as more and more people learn about this, the signature count's going to go up. One, one question. Um, You've always been someone who wanted to to kind of be cooperative with the government, have them work mm-hmm. with you. Sure. Uh, this seems to be have a little bit of a confrontational or challenging edge to it. Where, where do you where do you sit on well, that? Let me clarify. I Very never quickly. like I Very said they work with me. They're not going to work with me. Uh, they wouldn't touch me the ten foot pole. Mm-hmm. What I, I, my my sense was not to be accusatory. In other words, I don't claim they've broken the law. They're not criminals. Right. They're not evil. I believe that their interest is the national security. 
And if they wanted to work with the people in this community, that would certainly be fine, but of course they cannot do that. To do that, they would almost end the truth embargo immediately. So this is, you know, you could call it confrontational, but basically we're asking very reasonable questions. We're putting evidence and, and the links directly to the evidence up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, I'm naming names here, but they, they were they were involved with the initiative and they've never spoken about it. So, you know, as yeah. confrontations go, this is pretty low key. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, you've you've really outlined things really great for us. So, once again, Stephen, uh, you know, people should visit your website to look at the information about where to sign the petition. I would encourage everyone to 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 go to the uh, the PRG website and uh, look at the information. And let's see if we can't get that twenty five thousand number up there. And because I know that it's something that we're all working towards here. To have yes, the and, government. and remember, mm. any anybody can sign. Any course, nation, yep. any mm-hmm. person can sign around the world. And the key site to follow all this is disclosurepetition.info. Okay, Stephen, thank you very much for being with us this evening. And we will follow this with you along the way, and we have your support, and Thanks, we'll but, support uh, you along. Okay, take care. Well, uh, it's been quite an evening, and uh, I want to thank you all for joining us this evening. Richard will be back. Next week here in the chair, I'm not exactly uh, sure what guests he's going to have, but I know for a fact that it will be something very interesting and challenging, uh, just as this evening was. And I want to thank Richard for uh, giving me the opportunity, and uh, also David Gaskin, thank you very much for producing, and everyone else associated with the program. So good night, everyone, and thanks for being with us, and uh, keep on challenging your reality. Good night. I'm Victor, Victor Vigiani. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.